Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. This is the first time we've ever had a part two with George Antone. He wrote The Banker's Code, and we're going to get into The Debt Millionaire as well. So, George, welcome back to the show. It's great to have Thanks, you here again. Scott. Thanks. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, I am. And I, I loved our talk in between. And we're, we're just talking about our, our favorite books and, and your writing style and how you like to keep uh, stories interesting, right? You, you love a good story that's moving forward. And we're talking about finance books. And, and I think that's so important. I, and that's why I, I loved your book. You, you you caught me with that story, right? And I was flipping through those pages. And it, for whatever reason, when there's a good story, it you cling to the pages a little yeah. bit more. You know, I have to tell you what inspired me, uh, Scott, was um, when I read uh, Robert Kiyosaki's books, you know, especially Rich Dad Poor Dad, something he said that was fascinating to me is he said, I'm not the best writer and I probably suck in writing. However, I wanted to share this information and it changed my life. So many books have had such a huge impact and I honestly never cared about how it was written, like in terms of the the grammar and all that stuff. I just mm. wanted, it just was so moving and impactful that I decided, you know what, it is completely okay to write a book, even if I suck at writing. And, uh, but uh, it's just whatever moved me and uh, that I wanted to share with the world. So uh, thank you for those kind words. I'm glad you did because, you know, I, I love the bankers, Koa. And, and you, you really caught me with another story in, in chapter one. And you talked about the secret lies of the game Monopoly. And, you know, we all love that game. I'm sure everybody's grown up, at least played it a few times. Uh, and, you know, what's the secret you said? Is it, is it buying four green homes and a hotel? And you said, nope, that's not the way to win. You know, is it buying Park Place? And, you know, nope, not that either. So, so what's the secret to, to winning the game Monopoly? You know, I I love that uh, uh, you know analogy because it's so true. If you think about uh, um, Monopoly, we, we all get excited about you know wanting to play the game, and we all pick our favorite pieces, and we all run around the board, and uh, uh, but we we never really step back to think about who's really winning the game every time, and it's really the the bank. The bank mm -hmm. always wins. In fact, if you read the rules carefully. There are really two sets of rules. One is for the player, meaning the investor, and one is for the banker. And uh, in fact, you see how much power the banker has in the game, but also in real life. Um, if you look at, you know, every building in the world, every, sorry, the biggest buildings in the world, uh, the biggest buildings in every city, they're all banks. And, um, uh, but that's in real life too. It's So in Monopoly, the banker wins, and also because they know how to play the game of finance, and uh, and so um, you know it's it's a fascinating story, yeah. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Yeah. So yeah. game of finance, and and you go into private lenders. So why would someone use a private lender over a bank, and why would they pay more? So for borrowers, so I want everyone to think about this for a second. If you find a property that's worth, let's just say whatever, um, it's worth two hundred thousand, but it's worth four hundred thousand, as an example. Mm -hmm and you have one week to close and if you go to a bank the bank is going to tell you you know there's no guarantee we're going to give you the loan and it's going to take 30 days and they could at any point um you could uh, not get qualified uh, but a private individual that has the money might say you know what i'm willing to lend you the money however um uh, i want to uh, charge you more 
because obviously, you know, if I'm going to lend someone money, I could put my money into something that's paying me whatever, 6 7%, or I could put it somewhere else and make 10 12% with someone it's a low-risk deal. So obviously, a private lender um, will want to charge more because they have other places to put it. But as a borrower, um, you have this great deal that you're about to lose, and you have literally one or two weeks to close on this deal. So obviously, you're willing to pay 10% or 12% per year, but you're only keeping the money for six months, and you can turn around and sell it and make some money. So that's why borrowers will always go to private lenders if they have a good hot smoking deal and they're willing to pay more because they're about to make so much more money from that money and and so for them the borrowers the certainty of getting the money in in a very specific time frame is more important to them than the cost of money because they know they're going to ultimately make more money anyway so so that's why there's there's a need for for private money much more than banks uh, for the, for certain deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes back to what we talked about in the first interview is that, is that capital stack and, and making sure you have the right one. And, and you, right. that was more for buy and hold, but when the fix and flip, you can, you could structure that a little bit more aggressively. That's correct. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So you talk about hypothecation in the book. Can you expand on why that is so important? Yeah. So the word, Hypothecation and specifically rehypothecation. I'm going to add the word, the letters RE before that. Rehypothecation is probably the most important word in banking, and uh, it allows bankers uh, and lenders to make money off of, uh, or, or let me say that. If I was to lend you money, for example, Scott, and you gave me a, a deed of trust or mortgage. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm lending you money against your property, and I have uh, a piece of paper from you. I can use that piece of paper as collateral to borrow more money to lend out to someone else. So let's just say that I lend you 100000 and you're paying me, say, 10%, and I can use that as collateral to borrow money, say, at 7%. So now you're paying me 12 or 10 or whatever we said. I'm paying 7 to the person I just borrowed the money or the bank, and then I can turn around and use that money to do another loan. So rehypothecation is allowing me to reuse that piece of paper as collateral for the next loan. And that's what uh, uh, banks do. They, they lend all that money out, and then they, they use that, these loans as collateral to borrow more money. That's called rehypothecation. It is one of the most brilliant things out there for uh, people who want to learn more about how to turn money and how to use the, the, the Powerful strategies of banks. They have to learn uh, what's called rehypothecation. Very, very, very powerful word. Interesting. Is there a sample deal that, you know, so you lend me 100K at 10% and you get that deed of trust, right? And mm-hmm. sorry, I want to re explain. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to grasp. And you go to the bank and, and that's secured from them and you borrow more debt? Correct. So, so let's just say yeah. your property, just to expand and add more detail. Let's just say your property is worth um, 160000 okay? Mm-hmm. And I lend you 70% of that, so $100,000. So now my, my money is in a lower risk position because you have so much to lose if you don't pay me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I might end up with $160,000 asset for the 100000 so it's a good deal for me, and I'm in first position. 
So at this point, I'm, I've secured my, not secured, but uh, I've, I have the collateral, I have the security, and it's low risk for me. So now I have this deed of trust that's signed by you that says $100,000 at whatever 10%. Now I can use that piece of paper as collateral. It could be to a bank or it could be to other individuals, right? And borrow against it. So let's just say I borrowed 90000 against it or 80000 or 100000 even. And now I have access to my money. So you're paying me uh, 10%. I'm paying the the source of money, let's just say 7%. And now I have my 100000 to do a second loan like that, right? So now I can turn the money over and over again. Okay, so you're making the arbitrage on the 6% or 7% you're paying, you're getting the 10, Correct. so you're making three. Correct. And then you go lend it out again to make another three or so. Exactly. That's okay. exactly correct. And then the other person is going to give me a deed of trust or mortgage, depending on the state. And then I can use that. And that's called the rehypothecation, right? Is because okay. I am re-borrowing uh, against the same uh, or for another security. Another Interesting. Yeah. Well, I love that. So in the Banker's Code, you talk about the three teams of people in the world. Can you expand on that? So, yeah, so in terms of, of if you think about the whole world, uh, everyone can be divided into one of three groups or three teams. One are the consumers, and that's the biggest group. And the consumers consume, right, um, products and services. Uh, and the other team are the producers. And the producers are typically, you know, like small businesses and or businesses just in general. And they produce products and services for the consumers to consume. And that's the second team. And the third team are the bankers. And the bankers are the ones, are the smallest group in this, among these three teams. And they're the ones lending money to both sides, to the producers and to the consumers. But they're also using the producer and consumer's money to turn around and lend back to them. And so they are playing the game of finance. The producers are... Um, uh, in the game of you know businesses or a business running a business and selling products and services, and uh, investors fall under producers, and finally the consumers. So the consumers um, uh, make money by working a job for the producers. The producers make money by selling to the consumers, and the banks make money by creating spreads from the producer and, and consumers' money, and they they take on the lowest risk possible. And if you think about businesses, uh, we all know that the highest risk of failure is among businesses. So the producers have a high risk of failure uh, and the banks have the lowest risk of failure uh, in this whole game. So uh, really everyone falls into one of those three um, uh, teams. And so they have to then decide which team do I belong to uh, as a producer, as a consumer or as a uh, lender. Now, just to add one more thing to that. Um, the, the people that play even the bigger game are the ones that actually do um, the producers and, um, uh, finance, uh, and, and bankers. And I call them financiers because they play even a bigger game. Um, but uh, I won't go there right now. But these are the three <laughs> major teams. All right. Let's talk about the secret formula in the, in the third book. Uh, can you expand on why that is so important? So... When I was working at um, um, Intuit, I was working on, on two products uh, as a software developer. Uh, one was uh, 
Quicken and one was Quicken Financial Planner. And when I was programming these, uh, you know, we have to know, you know, the formulas and all that stuff. So we have to go into a lot of details. So one of the things I discovered in there was this um, formula that is so impactful that I felt everyone in the world should know. So let me give you an analogy first, and then I'll go into the formula and, and how it ties into affects all of us, no matter what, whether investing or not. So imagine you're in a race, okay? And you start running in this race. And as you're running this race, you look up and you see the finish line, except the finish line is moving away from you. And it's moving away from you at a faster pace than you're moving towards it. So even though you're, you're running forward, you're really running backwards relative to the finish line, right? So the first question you think about is not just about um, running, but you're thinking about how, how fast should I run? So how fast is the finish line moving away from me? And how fast, how much faster should I run to catch up to the finish line? So the finish line represents the financial system. Now, the first question you have to ask yourself is what at what pace is the finish line moving away? So let's just take an example. If the finish line is moving away from you at um, uh, whatever, at 10 miles an hour, so you have to run faster than that, obviously. So it turns out that you can actually measure how fast the finish line is moving away from you. And so no matter what you invest in, it doesn't matter any of this stuff. The question is, what am I going to do to catch up to the finish line? Because that's the financial system. So at the point of um, uh, retirement, I have to have a certain amount of money to catch up. So what happens is it turns out that there is a formula that allows you to calculate how fast the finish line is moving and then you have to beat that number. So let's turn those numbers into percentages. If you find out that the finish line is moving at 8% away from you, that means your whole portfolio needs to be generating more than 8%, okay? So you have to be generating 9%, 10% just to catch up to the finish line. Mm -hmm. Now, most people are happy generating 6% and 5% and they're showing off, but they're really moving backwards relative to the finish line, right? So it turns out that you can actually calculate, and I have the formula here, I'll, I'll show it to you on, on, the, uh, on, on the camera, but we also can give it to your, uh, on the notes. So if you look at this formula here, I'm going to put it on the screen. Uh, it's B, which stands for break even. I'll talk about what that means. And on top, you have I for inflation. And in the bottom, you have in the de denominator, you have one minus R. R is the effective tax rate. Now, all you have to do is plug in those numbers. So for your effective tax rate, just ask your uh, accountant, what's my effective tax rate? And so let's just say they give you, for example, 40%. Okay. So you plug in 40% in there. For inflation, you plug in the number. Um, in this case, let's just say 6%. I mean, we know inflation is higher than what the government tells us. Let's just say for now it's 6%. So 0 0.06 on top. When you plug in those numbers, you have 6% on top, and you have 1 minus 40% in the bottom, which is 60%. That gives you a break-even of 10% in this example. What does that mean? That means you have to generate a 10% without using tax, without using a, a debt, you have to generate a 10% return, a 10% return every single year in a compounding manner, just to keep up with the, the, the financial, the, what's called the purchasing power. Think about that for a second. In this example, 
10% every single year in a compounding manner without using debt. Where on earth can you do that without using debt? So that means you can't say, I'm going to buy real estate with debt, right? I'm talking strictly here. This formula affects all of us. It doesn't matter what you invest in stocks, mutual funds, real estate, move all that aside. You have to beat this in order to keep moving forward. So it turns out for you to be able to beat this, you have to take significantly more risk in your investing. Well, that's that's uh, that's unacceptable for for you know most of us, including myself. So the other way, the only way to beat this, is to actually use debt strategically. And so what happens as I started playing with this, I realized that if you multiply I by M, and I'm going to just show you here. Okay, like the M, I added. Mm -hmm. M is my money in the deal. In other words, what percentage of uh, my money is in the deal versus debt? So, and if you remember in part one, I talked about inflation gets passed on, the negative side of inflation gets passed on to the lender, right? So, what happened with break even is for you to beat or to run faster towards the finish line, you have to, you have to use debt. And you have to use that against stable assets. That's why real estate is so fascinating, but you can do it with other things. In, in other words, what am I saying here? You have to know this formula because there's nothing worse than waking up when it's too late and finding out that all these years I've been making money, but I'm actually moving backwards toward uh, relative to the purchasing power. And so that's the problem with most investors is that they're happy making five, six percent, but they're technically moving backwards relative to the finish line or the uh, purchasing power. And they only find out when it's too late. Ask anyone who's retired and tell them what did they learn. And they realize the purchasing power, they made money, but they can't afford the same things they used to 20 years ago because they, they didn't they weren't aware of this formula. Mm -hmm. So now that you know this and you realize that that's why we have to use debt strategically in order to improve our purchasing power. So now that you know this, the question is how to use debt. And that's what we talked about in part one is um, understanding debt because having too much debt or too little debt, you're, um, too, too much debt is high risk, too little debt, you're moving backwards relative to the finish line. Does that make sense? It does. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you're not taught this in high school. You're not taught, you know, about investing in a financial, maybe at a basic level. But you know, you know, if the stock market's historically eight percent return, and and now all of a sudden you're in a forty percent tax bracket. Yep. Well, hey, you're you're losing. You know. Yep. That's exactly correct. And 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 that's the part that we're we're all so conditioned to think uh, in terms of um, dollars coming in, but not in terms of purchasing power. What can we buy? So that's why you'll notice a lot of investors were able to buy certain certain things 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Now they can't afford it, but they've been making money all these years. It's because their purchasing power is going down, how much they can buy, uh, but they're making money. Uh, and it's not good. It's not keeping up with, with the, you know, with this formula here. So that's why it's really important to know this, what we call break even return, what I call the secret formula um, uh, is, 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 is so critical. You start with this. And then you build off of that. Interesting. Okay. Now, when it comes to debt in your third book, you talk about four teams. Can you expand on that? 
So when you, yeah, in the third book I talk about, when I talk about this formula here, I talk about relative to this, there are four types of people in the world. Uh, there are those that pay interest for everything. Uh, and those are people that are always using the credit cards and they're using different things and they're always in debt, but bad, bad type of debt. And uh, they're making everyone wealthy. Then there's the people that don't use debt for anything and they pay cash for everything. And they are always moving backwards because of this formula here. Their purchasing power over time is going down. They don't. Uh, they might invest their money um, in certain things, but they're not. Um, let me see. Let me take that back. These people are not investing or anything. Just everything is cash, and they don't use debt. So they're moving backwards relative to the finish line. Uh, the third ones are the ones that don't use debt, but they invest their money, so they earn interest. Um, uh, so they might take, uh, they never, they don't believe in debt, so they invest in mutual funds and even real estate, but without using debt. And so um, they are still moving backwards because they have to beat this break even, right? And it's very difficult to do that. So they're moving backwards, but slower. And the fourth type of person is the one that creates spreads. They use debt strategically, and then they make more money from it. So like real estate investors. But what happened is they're the ones making the spread. So what they do is they play the game the best. And they're only the one, they're the only ones in this whole system moving forward. And if you think about how banks work, banks actually do that. They're creating, they're playing the spread game. And so uh, it's not about lending. It's strictly about spreads. Because spreads allow you to do what I talked about in part one, pass on the negative uh, impact, negative side of inflation to the people you're borrowing money from. So as an investor, you are also in the fourth category, but you have to know how to play the game right. Um, so uh, again, even if you have money and you're not using debt and you're just investing with all your money, you're still moving backwards relative to the finish line, but you don't know it and you don't feel it until it's too late, you get to the finish line. You have to understand the use of debt strategically. And and that's and that's really hard to do. But it's a big shift here because we're all told mm -hmm. in don't use debt. Uh, now you see why Robert Kiyosaki has been right all this time because when you look at this mathematically into this formula here, you realize how right he was. And I, I was, you know, I grew up believing debt is bad, but there is no other way to beat the financial system without using debt strategically. But you have to know how to use it. It's amazing. It's a it's a mind blown, you know, philosophy of you know getting to that fourth team level, you know, and creating yep. those spreads. And yep. I didn't quite hear about that for the longest time in that that arbitrage and and using it correctly. So going back to using it correctly is that when you talk about you know not leveraging too much, not leveraging too little, but just the right amount where right. you know a property's still going to debt service. Correct. Okay. Correct. So, so just to expand on that, um, Scott, because you um, you said you said something here. I want to make sure people get that. So, as long as something debt service that or or, but that's not necessarily what we're talking about because you could have you know in the book Wealthy Core I talk about um, uh, negative leverage, positive leverage, and neutral leverage. So you can technically cash flow but still have negative leverage. Your loan constant can still be, just from part one, we talked about this, 
your loan constant can still be higher than the cap rate, and yet you're still cash flowing. You want to actually take it a step further by doing not just cash flowing, but have positive leverage. And that's the key there. And so in part one, we talked about the loan constant being less than the cap rate. That is mm-hmm. so critical and having reserves and fixed interest rate and all that stuff. So these are the building blocks of being able to be on the fourth team. Uh, so it's not just about cash flowing. It's about having positive leverage as well. So I think you use the example in the book and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you talk about fixed debt going out, let's say 30 years. And what you really are looking for is that appreciation as well, where, you know, there's this, you're paying too much interest, not enough principal. And then there's this curve that kind of flows with each other where you're getting the cash flow, but you're also getting the appreciation at the same rate, which makes your return greater. Correct. Correct. So um, <clears throat> if you remember, we talked about the um, the six buckets um, uh, for assets. So all buckets can be placed into one of six buckets. So let's go over the six buckets really quickly. So in bucket number one, so imagine uh, three on top and, and three in the bottom. Okay. The three buckets on top are growth only assets. That means uh, you buy something, you wait for it to go up in value. Uh, income only which is like a note or private lending, uh, and both, uh, like real estate, where you have both growth and income. Now, on the top row, the top three assets, are, top three buckets on top are for stable assets. You can have the same thing for volatile assets. Okay. Now, going back to your question, uh, in, in the example you're giving, you have growth and you have income. So it's a both, right, bucket. Mm. But certain times you have growth-only assets, which are actually incredible if you know how to use them correctly, and then you have income a- assets. So income assets, for example, like private lending, is where your your cap rate or your, your income is higher than the loan cost, and the cap rate is more than that. But that is a fixed spread. It doesn't change in most cases. Okay, In growth, you want to have exponential growth, and you want to have interest rate, not loan cost, but the interest rate lower than that. So for example, if you if the asset is growing at 8%, but the cost of money is um, 5%, you're fine. It has to be a certain type of debt, which is called accruing debt. So again, depending on which bucket we're talking about. So the example you gave is for a stable asset that's both growth and income. Now, the challenge with what I'm just saying with all this, Scott, is that Investors need to know these six buckets uh, because most investors think I need to buy real estate. They're not looking at what about other assets. So that's why you have to look. You you have to see it as a financing game because depending on what asset, what bucket it fits in, um, you can structure it differently. So what you said applies to both asset, both growth and income, and stable assets. It's amazing. I, I love the bucket. You know, it's yeah. it's a visual. You can see it. Um, so let's talk about the three high level steps in, in raising private money. So in, in raising money, which is um, obviously very, very important, um, the three main steps are number one, and every investor needs to learn how to raise money. Uh, big pictures, three steps. Number one is get in front of the right audience. So step one is right audience. 
Step two is the right script, know what to say. Mm -hmm. And step three is the right deal. So again, right audience. Don't waste your time with the wrong audience. And we should really expand on each one of those. Right script, know exactly what to say and have that prepared. Mm -hmm. And the right deal for the right person, for the right audience. These are the three steps in raising money. So who is the right audience? That's a great question. So the right audience would be high net worth individuals, um, uh, um, what I call busy professionals. And these are people making money, but they're so busy, they don't have time to look at things like this, right, at investing. So you have to solve a problem for them. So they have the, the capital, they have the, the, the um, you know, the, the money to invest, but they have also a big problem. So for example, doctors, let's talk about doctors. I've seen doctors that are making great money. However, they're so um, in a bad place because they're so busy, they don't have time to even think about investments, right? Uh, a lot of um, busy professionals, again, high net worth um, uh, busy professionals are, there's so many of them out there. Um, so. That's why I tell people, focus on the right audience and that's the right audience. So once you understand the right audience, the next question is, where where can I find them? So you wanna find, you wanna know what they read, you wanna know where they are, go there and get in front of them. So that's the right audience. And we'll talk about the right script here in a minute, but uh, but make sure you, you know everything about them, know where they hang out and go there. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the best practices for the right script? So for the right script, you wanna you wanna know what to say. And so one of the things I tell people is, don't ask for the money, okay? Don't ask for the money. And um, one of the things that ties into the right deal is they care more about a safer deal than the return. So in other words, if I'm talking to you about a deal and I tell you that there are two deals, one deal over here, deal A pays you 12%, but it's high risk and you could lose your principal. And the other deal over here pays 9%, but it's extremely low risk and uh, uh, it's you know relatively safe. Most people will pick 9% because they care more about the safety than the return. So once you understand that, you have to focus on talking about the safety. So you wanna share with them why it's structured so, so safe. And so most people always talk about returns, 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 but you have to also add in there the, the steps you've taken to lower the risk and make it a safer deal. So these are some of the things, the guidelines in the script that you have to think about is, uh, and really focus on their pain, solving their pain. So a lot mm -hmm. of their pain is that, um, um, uh, you know, if, if they don't have enough passive income or they don't have retirement, focus on, fixing their problem, not your problem, right? So again, don't ask for the money, but frame the conversation uh, to allow them to ask you to be in, in the deal. Number two, make sure you talk about the safety, not just the return, how you structured for, for low risk. And third, frame the conversation in terms of solving a problem for them, not for you personally. Interesting. I, I love that knowing that you, you know you have to start with the right audience, right? In in solving problems and, and figuring solutions, um, th that that's amazing. 
that's 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 very helpful. So, you know, Scott, just to add, just to add what you're saying there, um, as part of understanding the audience, you have to, in step one, you have to understand where they're coming from in terms of the, 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 the their problems and the challenges. The more you research them, the more you understand how to frame com uh, the script and the conversation. So important. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, George, are there any other talking points that you want to discuss? Um, you know, within the Bankers Code and the in the debt millionaire. So, you, one thing I tell people is understand the big picture first, um, mm -hmm. uh, and understand what you're trying to do. Um, what I mean by that is it's not about the asset. The asset only allows you to use debt and financing strategically to help you move forward. But there are some ratios and some metrics you have to be looking at because you don't want to take on too much risk, especially if you're raising money from friends and family. I've seen people, I, I, I met a gentleman in uh, one of the talks I was having he walked up to me and he told me that he had raised a million dollars and from friends and family and within two years had lost the whole million dollars and all the properties he bought. And so, you know, you think about that for a second. I mean, things will never be the same with that family. Um, he just lost all their hard-earned money and all the assets, all because he didn't take the time to learn how to structure this correctly. That million dollars, he had, if he had taken the time to learn to structure the deals, could have changed his whole entire life and helped him elevate all his family and friends uh, as well in the process. But just remember that when, whenever we're talking about raising money, you have to understand it's a lot more than just raising money. It's You have a responsibility to do what's best for everyone in terms of low risk, in terms of what's best for them, not just for you as well. Um, and that's your responsibility as an investor. You have to take the time and learn these things because that time to learn these things can have such a huge impact financially for everyone. So take the time to learn that. And, and people are putting money with you because they're, they've assumed you've done your job in, in uh, learning this stuff. So it's such a huge responsibility. It's not something you should take lightly. Uh, and and uh, so I tell people, take the time, learn about capital structures, learn about structuring deals, learn about the, the, the formula we just talked about, and understand what's the ultimate objective for you. Obviously, you know, to, to, to get to retirement and, and, and be able to retire sooner than later, but also, um, uh, you know, you, you have a bigger, bigger obligation for your family and friends if you're doing this and raising money from them. So... Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's great advice, and there's there's such deep wisdom in there, and we we have such great technology today that you know we can, you know, read books, you know, from a Kindle, or you know, and I'm sure that's why you're giving back with your books is you're you're trying to help and educate people. Same thing with the podcast, you know, you can educate yourself, and and that's so important, especially when you know your your first couple of deals are probably going to be your friends and family that are going to be investing with you, and. Yep. You you do you have that right and and that's great to to arm yourself with that knowledge because once you have it you know then you can see through the fog and, and come to that clear picture. Yep, very 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 important. I love 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 reading books. I think they're they're incredibly important and uh, 
the fact that people are reading it is just <laughs> even better for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's great, and and I highly recommend the books. I mean, and George, you, you just you just have a, a great writing style. Uh, you talk about topics that really aren't talked about, and the yeah. way you explain them, it, it's it's clear, and you can see it, and it makes you think on that higher level. You know, it's it's that mindset shift when you're clinging page by page. So, uh, I, I I enjoyed you know each one. Oh, thank you read. so thank yeah. you so much for that. Yeah. Yeah, so why don't we wrap up the second interview? Uh, you know, thank you so much for, for being on the show again. I, I love, you know, I'm learning from you right now, and, and I think that's very important to know. It's 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 amazing to, to continue to learn, you know, with such a, it's amazing authors. Um, and I'm definitely going to link in the show notes to, to where to purchase your books and, and your website. And, you know, do you have any last words for the, for the listeners? You know what, I just want to say this. Um, my last words would be um, investing is an incredible game. I love that, you know, Robert Kiyosaki talked about it being a game. I get it now. And it is such an incredible game. But just realize in part in playing this game, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. And the, you're going to have more bad days in the beginning. But those bad days are going to make you so much better as an investor. And uh, so just realize over all the big picture, don't give up. Keep going. Realize that it is a game, and uh, you know, at, at the end of our lives, you're going to look back and uh, you're going to say one of two things: either I wish I did it, or I'm glad I did it. And my recommendation to you is: is take the time, learn it, and be glad you did it. It's an incredible game. It is. Uh, it is a game that we all can win. Um, we just have to uh, help each other and uh, you know share the knowledge, but also uh, just realize that you're going to have bad days. You will never have a, a you'll never have a, the opportunity to have all good deals. You're gonna have mm -hmm. bad deals, but every bad deal cherish it uh, because it's gonna make you a better investor. And uh, try to avoid thinking that get rich overnight. It's not gonna happen. Uh, but you are leaping forward uh, over time as you learn and as you do. And keep the conversation going with people in your in your circles about investing. It's so important you surround yourself with the right people and uh, especially with podcasts like this. So Scott, again, thanks so much for having me. Really, really appreciate you for that. Well, thank you very much for your time, George. Really appreciate it. You have yourself a great day. All right. You too. Take care. Thank you. And that concludes our part two book club interview with author George Antone on the Banker's Code and the Debt Millionaire. In this book, it's a story of a brilliant scientist and thinker who shares with the author and with you incredible financial secrets passed down through generations. It's a story that chronicles the most powerful wealth-building strategies known to man, lessons that are the basis of banking. You'll be introduced to a whole new way of building wealth that some of the wealthiest families in the world have used and are still using to be the banker. I highly recommend you get out and get a copy of The Banker's Code and also The Debt Millionaire. This is just, a, it's a, such a great book. Um, it's kind of on that same line as Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where you're, you're reading it and it, it automatically turns your thinking 
right around. It's it's a great book, and I make sure that I leave some information in the show notes where you can pick your copy up today and find out more about George. Make sure you like us on Facebook, hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date to the authors we're interviewing and the books we're reading so you can learn right alongside us. My name is Scott, your host, and we'll see you next time.